Hello, this is Abby at Recovery Radio, and today I'd like to talk to you about personal empowerment. Here at Recovery Radio, we take the power you give us through your generous donations and combine them with others in a way that multiplies their effect. When someone listens to our podcast, they receive that power in an entirely different form, one that empowers them to practice their recovery. Please help us empower people by going to recoveryradio.net right now and clicking the donate button. Hi, everybody. My name is Shirley, and I'm an alcoholic. You got the Kleenex? <laughs> now do you see why I drank? Now do you understand why I drank? <laughs> oh, first of all, my sobriety day is July the 29th, 1982. And I'm proud of that. I've never done anything in my life that has meant so much as being an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm truly grateful for that. Um, I want to thank the committee for inviting my best friend to come along with me this weekend. He just happens to be my husband, the father of my children, my driver. You know, he really drove me to drinking. (laughs) He drove me to treatment in that truck up and down those roads. Uh, And he drives me to a lot of meetings and conferences, and uh, he's truly my best friend today, Bo, and I'm sure y'all all heard him earlier this morning. You want to stand up? You can. Okay. <laughs> uh, the big book says I share with you what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. I'm the oldest of three children. I have a brother that's four years younger than I am, and he is normal. And we don't know yet what that means. Uh, he uh, has been at the same job forever, the same house forever, the same wife forever. He doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, and he doesn't cuss. I don't know what he does for fun. <laughs> and then I have a sister that's eight years younger than I am, and she's doing it all right now in, Memphis, in, in Tennessee somewhere working on her story. <laughs> it ought to be a stem winder. <laughs> I haven't seen Gail in nine years. I haven't seen Gail since uh, the day my son was buried, Uh, but uh, hopefully she'll make it into this program. When I was 13 years old, my parents signed the divorce papers, and we thought we got the problem out of the house. My mother came to me and my brother and sister and said, pack up all your things. We're moving in with your grandparents, her parents, and it just tickled me to death. I was the oldest grandchild, and I was spoiled rotten. And please believe me that every grandchild that Bo and I have will be spoiled rotten. There's just a trait you just have to carry through. Uh, we moved in with my grandparents, and I knew I was going to be okay. I turned 14 that summer. I started to high school in September, had a whole new set of friends, lived in this different neighborhood. Things were looking up. We didn't have to worry about whether my dad came home or not. Uh, The first Christmas there with my grandparents when I was 14 was the best Christmas I'd ever had in my life. For the first time, my mom did not sit around all day on Christmas and cry. You see, she did that a number of years. And there was never any presents. I can remember never really ever getting for Christmas anything that I ever asked for. Because, you see, my daddy never made it home with any money. And uh, I can remember my dad saying to us on a number of occasions, I'll be home, be ready, we'll go do something. And he never showed up. I got to where what he said was never going to materialize. It was never the truth, so I just, it went in one ear, not the other. 
uh, right after Christmas that year, in January, my granny suddenly became ill. In the middle of January, and on January the 29th, she died at the age of 50 of cancer. And I didn't understand that. I knew why my daddy was no longer around, but I could not understand why I had to lose my granny. You see, she was the one who was going to teach Shirley how to be a young lady. She was the one who sat at night and made sure that I had a new outfit to wear to school every day. She made me a new outfit every day. And she would sit by that light at night, or if it was wintertime and it was cold, she would be sitting by the fire, and I'd see her hem a dress or put the finishing touches on an outfit so I would have something new to wear to school. And the way I looked at it was it was homemade. It was homemade. Everybody else had bought stuff. Mine was homemade. And boy, what I wouldn't give right now for something homemade. Things have kind of changed just a little bit in my life. And uh, my granddaddy came to my mom one day and said, Louise, if you're going to live here in my home, honey, <laughs> you need to get a job <laughs> with these three children. And you see, if my grandmother had lived, my mother never would have had to go to work. <laughs> she was just a good enabler. But... Uh, my mom found a job, and she had quit school to marry my daddy, so the only job that she was able to find was working in a factory, working the night shift, 3 till 11. So she moved us all the way across town in a little two-bedroom apartment, and she became the daughter, so to speak, and I became the mother, simply because when she came home from work at night, we were all three in bed asleep. When we got up to go to school the next morning, she was in bed asleep. And I sort of had the responsibility of making sure that Dave and Gail had supper. Nice, they got their homework, they got a shower, and they got in bed. Dating was not ever an issue. It just wasn't a priority right then in my life. I know we girls sat at the lunch table and talked about you good-looking hunks. And there was a word such as hunk back then. And, uh, but I'd never had a date. You see, when they'd have pep rallies at school on Thursday afternoon and football games on Friday night, I was on the bus headed home because I had assured my mom that by the time she was at work an hour I was already home from school I didn't have a lot of girlfriends that came over and visited and I certainly didn't ever go to someone else's house because you know I had to watch over this brother and sister and one day at school a girlfriend of mine said hey I'm going out on a blind date this weekend and uh, this, this guy that I'm going to date is going to bring a cousin of his with him. You think your mother might let you go out on a blind date? And I said, well, you know, I'll ask her. It's Saturday, and my mom doesn't work on Saturday. Maybe I can go. Well, my mom said, sure, you can go, Shirley, but nothing ever happens on a blind date. Well, you heard him this morning at 930. Don't tell me things don't happen on a blind date. And this is before the drink. <laughs> well... We went out on that date, and I can remember it. We went skating, roller skating, and my curfew was 10 o'clock. No wonder no one ever got in trouble back then. You didn't have time. <laughs> and uh, I can remember my mom saying, now, don't kiss him goodnight, Shirley, when he walks you to the door. And I said, why? <laughs> I mean, if you've had a good time, why not kiss the fellow goodnight? And she said, good girls don't do that. And I said, okay. So... I was walked to the door that night, and Bo tried to kiss me, and I wouldn't let him because, you see, my mother said, don't do that. And I'm so grateful that earlier in the evening he had asked me for my phone number, <laughs> or I might not be your speaker this morning. And uh, So uh, I walked in, and my mom was ironing, and she looked at me, and she said, well, did you kiss him goodnight? I said, no, ma'am, I didn't. You said not to. And she said, well, he probably won't call you back anyway. 
And I said, well, why couldn't I kiss him goodnight if I wasn't going to see him anymore? <laughs> and I looked at her and I remember saying, you know, I'm going to marry him one of these days. I fell in love with Bo instantly. I truly believe in love at first sight. I don't know whether it was his smile. I don't know whether it was his pretty blue eyes. I, I just know that I had a really great time that night. And I liked being with him. Well, the next day, it was Sunday, and he went to church that morning. And after dinner, I'm sure it was after dinner, he called and said, could I go out Sunday night? And I thought, oh, boy, I got another chance. <laughs> and so uh, he came and picked me up, and he walked me out to the car and opened my side of the car door. You remember that, girls? You know, it was a long time ago. And um, hey, I slid in and slid all the way across the front seat to the middle, and he gets in the car and closes the door, and he puts his arm around me, and he kisses me. And he's been kissing me ever since. <laughs> and um, we dated for five years. And during this five years, uh, we talked an awful lot uh, about if we were to ever, ever marry uh, children. Uh, we knew that if we married, it was going to be for good because he was from a divorced family by this time and I was definitely from a divorced family. And... Uh, and I had made the remark that I wanted my children to have a daddy around because I never had a daddy. You know, my dad was the kind of man who, my dad is the kind of person, and he's still alive, who didn't believe in child support. He didn't believe in uh, birthday presents. I'm 52 years old, and I've never gotten a birthday present from my daddy. My daddy never bought a Mother's Day present for us kids to give to my mom. And uh, so we talked about this, and, and one thing we knew for sure when we were dating was that we loved each other. We loved each other. Uh, and it's sort of like the gas stove. It has four eyes on it and uh, a pilot light. And Bo and I had that pilot light going. We married, and this disease of alcoholism came through our home and just completely busted it wide open. And there were an awful lot of years when there was not a light on that gas stove burning other than that pilot light. And we found these programs of Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, and Alateen. And we were able to put this relationship back together and celebrate 33 years last April the 30th. It never would have happened without these programs. But we had that love, and we've always had that love. I can remember when Bo put that ring on my finger, the thought came to my mind that I needed to call my daddy <laughs> and have him walk me down the aisle. I just thought that, that the bride walked down the aisle on the arm of her dad. And uh, at this time in my life, that was the only man in my life who was my dad. I was to later have a stepfather, but I called my dad, and uh, he answered the phone, and I should have known then that he still had that natural slur. I should have known he'd been drinking. But it didn't matter. You see, this was going to be the best day of my life, the happiest day of my life, and my dad surely would show up for this. Well, I told him where the church was, what time, what to wear, and please, Dad, be on time. And he said, wow, be there. You can count on it. And we get to the church, and it's April the 30th, and it's 7.15, and this wedding's supposed to start at 7.30, and there's no daddy. Everyone has been seated. The candles have all been lit. The music is playing very quietly. 
Bo is at the front of the church with the preacher and best man ready to walk out, and I'm at the back of the church not having anybody to walk me down the aisle, and I'm thinking, he's not going to show up. He promised me that he'd show up. And my mom is standing there with me, and she has that same look that she had all those many years that, we, that she had when we were all living together. And it was saying, he's not going to show up. But she never said a word. And about that time, someone walked outside to get a cigarette, and I heard him say, well, man, he just pulled right up on the sidewalk, didn't he? And I said, he's here. <laughs> Whoa, he's here. <laughs> I didn't care how he got there. Just bring him in. And, uh, and my dad walked through those big double doors. I mean, just kind of flung them open, and he walked over to me. And first of all, I noticed that he had that natural glow. Still had that natural glow. He no longer had the brown eyes he gave me. They were bloodshot red. And my daddy walked over to me and took one look at me. He took one look at my mother, and he turned around and walked out. Out those big double doors, got in his car on that driveway, on that sidewalk, and left. And I'm looking at my mom, and I'm saying, what do I do now? My brother, bless his heart, old David, comes over and he said, pull your veil down over your face. I'll walk you down the aisle. I've been trying to get rid of you for years. And <laughs> my brother to this day thinks he's responsible for me and Bo staying married 33 years and we let him. It's just not worth the hassle. And, and you know, I can remember, I can remember getting that car and, and leaving from that church on that honeymoon. And the first thing I said when we got in the car was, there will not be any drinking in our home. That came from me. And we left, and we, don't, we went on our honeymoon, and we started on this thing called the Great American Dream. We were just two young kids, madly in love. And we wanted to tackle this mean old world and make a difference. And uh, Bo had a good job, and I had a good job. And the first year we were married, we'd saved up enough money for a down payment on that pretty little home that had three bedrooms, one for a little boy, one for a little girl, a big fenced-in backyard, and we were off and running. The first wedding anniversary we spent was in this new little home. No children. Second wedding anniversary, we were in this new little home and no kids, but we were trying. <laughs> and the third wedding anniversary, Bo pulled up in the driveway in a little two-door red Thunderbird for me, for, for my wedding present. And I thought that was the cutest little car on the road. It was, you know, it was the kind that had the two bucket seats and the steering wheel tilted and you sat down in the bucket seat and pulled that steering wheel. It didn't hold a lot of groceries. But it was a sharp little car. And, uh, and I can remember coming home from work one day and a man hit me. I was in his blind spot and he just kind of scraped me down one side of that car and it didn't do any damage. Uh, I called the police, we filed a report, and I drove on home and uh, went inside the house and told Bo, I said, you need to come out here and check out my little car. I've had an accident. And, uh, and you couldn't see it. You just couldn't see that scratch down the side if you didn't really know. And Bo says, well, promise me one thing. Promise me that you'll go to the doctor and get checked. And I said, but I'm fine. He said, I know, but you know it was the other man's fault, and you don't want to wake up one morning and have a whiplash, or you don't want a couple of months down the road have a backache, and you just promised me that you'll go to the doctor. And I said, okay. Well, I go to the good old family doctor, and back then they did take appointments. You just went and sat. And uh, I went and sat in this doctor's office, and, and finally after he checked me over from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, he said, Shirley, go in my office and have a seat and I'll be in there in just a minute to talk to you. 
And I thought to myself, he's found something wrong with me. And then it dawned on me how good I felt. I had not felt this way in a couple of months. So I sat in his office and he came in and instead of going over on his side of the desk and facing me, he just pulled up a chair right beside me. And he just kind of tapped me on the knee and he said, Shirley, you're two months pregnant. And I said, from the wreck? <laughs> I mean, I hadn't even started drinking yet. And, um, my, first re my first thought was, I can't tell Bo. I mean, I'm married three and a half years. So he said, get him on the phone. I'll tell him. So I dialed up Bo at the, his office and got him on the phone, and I just handed the phone to the doctor like I was afraid to say anything. You know, this doctor gets him on the phone, and he says, Bo, got Shirley here in my office, checked her over from head to toe. Only thing wrong with her is she's two months pregnant. Both said, from the wreck. <laughs> uh, well, that little wreck's name was Mike, and he was born November the 10th of that year, the sunshine of my life. A little blonde-headed, blue-eyed hunk. And there's no other word to put on anyone named Mike but hunk. Well, 17 months later, I had another wreck. And her name is Sissy. <laughs> Knock on wood, I haven't had any more wrecks, but um, she, she was brown-headed, brown-eyed, and I tell you what, I don't know what I'd do without Sissy. Today, she's my very best girlfriend. She's my very best girlfriend. Well, Bo and I took a little inventory. We didn't know it, but we had, we had the two kids, we had the two cars, we had the house. We had all those credit cards that you have when you're living the great American dream. We decided, we came to the conclusion that I needed to go back to work so that that second payday would help us live the great American dream. So I went back to work. Before I went back to work, I found this lady to take care of my children. This lady was more than a babysitter. This lady was the lady who kept them in her home. When I would leave for work, I would take them by her house. If I was an hour or two getting back, like if I went to the grocery store on the way home from work, that's okay. Just call her and let her know. If Bo and I wanted to go out for dinner during the week, all we had to do was call Mama Betty. If we wanted to take a weekend and just get away, just the two of us, Mama Betty was always available. Mama Betty was a godsend. I still see things in Sissy today that Mama Betty taught her. And Mama Betty was there when the drinking started. So I truly believed that God was looking out for me long before I ever took that first drink. Well, I started on this new job, and one day at lunch, one of the girls said, Shirley, we need another member of a social sorority. How about you coming and joining? And I thought, boy, now that's it. I got it all now. I didn't get to go to anything after school. I didn't get to join any sororities or stay for pep rallies, and a thought came to my mind, I can do that now. I can take one night a month and, and join a, a sorority or club and be a part of something away from work and home, so I joined. I went through the initiation, and in the late summer, in August, they had a dance down at someone's lake house on the Warrior River right outside of Hueytown. Once again, there was Mama Betty, who took care of Mike and Sissy all of Saturday, Saturday night, and we were to pick them up on Sunday afternoon. And Bo and I drive down to the Warrior River, and this lady's got all those gorgeous lamps in her front yard lit, and there's a live band, there's an open bar. And the moon is reflecting off of that warrior river just like a picture 
and my husband walked up to me and handed me a Tom Collins. And he said, here, honey, drink this. Well, I'm an alcoholic who remembers her last drink, and I want to tell you about my first one. It was in a real tall glass. It had a tint of pink to it. It had a straw. It had a toothpick across the top of that glass, and on that toothpick it had a maraschino cherry with a stem. It had a slice of orange and a hunk of pineapple. And unbeknown to me, somewhere in that glass was an umbrella, because I swear I drank every bit of it, and that umbrella just opened up. I mean, that's the way it... You know, when I think about it, I, I remember drinking every bit of that and thinking, you know, that was good. And I hear people talk about how the taste drove them crazy. Uh-uh. I, li I really liked it. And then toward the middle part of the evening and all, you know, uh, I could feel some effects from that. And I didn't say, oh, Bo, I think we need to go home. I'm feeling the effects. I drank another one. Um, but I liked being a part of that sorority because at our monthly meetings, we had a drink. And what I did was I started having something at the house. See, I knew in my mind that I couldn't, you know, just go to a bar and drink. Well, I didn't know I could do that, but I thought if I kept it at the house, it would be a lot more convenient and a lot better for me. And I got off work every day at 4, was home at 4.30, and uh, what I did was I kept my booze there in the house in the kitchen. I'm a kitchen alcoholic. I am also a wineette. All of you guys who drink wine are winos. I'm a wineette, proud of it. Um, and what I drank was Boone's Farm Tickle Pink. Isn't that awful? But let me tell you why I did that. When I was drinking, it was $3.17 a bottle. And toward the really bad part of my active alcoholism, I could take three $1 bills out of Mike's blue jeans pocket for his lunch money and put it with 17 cents and run to the Quick Mart and buy a bottle. Or I could take a knife and slide it up Sissy's piggy bank just so and take out enough quarters to put with it 17 cents and go buy me a bottle of wine. Now what I did was I poured that wine. I was real classy now. I was not a sloppy. I mean, I want you to know I drank with, with the glass decanter and the wine glasses. And I poured my Boone's Farm in a wine, uh, glass wine decanter and kept it in the left side of the refrigerator. Mike and Sissy liked strawberry Kool-Aid, and I put it in a white Tupperware pitcher on the right side of the refrigerator. And I told Mike and Sissy, your Kool-Aid is on the right side, Mom's Kool-Aid is on the left. And to this day, Sissy will not touch Kool-Aid. She will not touch Kool-Aid. And that's the tiniest scar that my alcoholism put on her. You know, I drank in my kitchen. I didn't go to bars. I've never been in jail. I've never had a DUI. Uh, I didn't run around. I did all of my drinking and damage under my roof in my home. And let me tell you something, I did a lot of damage. I want to tell you I could cut down Mike and Sissy by opening my mouth and saying one word or I could look at them and tear them completely apart. My daughter's left-handed, and on the nights when I wasn't able to stay awake long enough to finish anything, my daughter would pick up and finish it for me. And I don't know at what age she started pulling a chair up by the stove and finishing dinner because Mom was passed out somewhere between the kitchen and the bedroom. My daughter's an excellent cook today. She can clean up her townhouse in a New York minute, but it was because she had to do it 
when her mother was fallen down drunk or passed out. But she would load the dishwasher, and I would get up in the morning and jump all over her because it wasn't loaded the way I thought it needed to be loaded. She would dry the towels and sheets after I would pass out, and she would fold them and put them in the linen closet, and the next morning I would get up to pull the towel out. And because they were not folded the way I, I wanted them folded, I would pull every one of them out and say, if you can't fold them the way I want them folded, don't do it. I don't know when Mike's bedroom door started being locked. It used to drive me crazy. But my son would go to bed at night and lock his door, and I couldn't go in. Sissy would close her door, bedroom door, but she never locked it. And so what I would do the mornings after I would pass out the night before, I would get up and go get the children up to go to school. I never could go in Mike's bedroom. I'd have to knock on the door. I would go to Sissy's bedroom, and I'd walk into her bedroom over by her bed, and I would shake her, and I'd say, Sissy, it's time to get up. And her pillowcases were always wet. And the thought once in a while would go through my mind. Well, let's see. I bet she dried her hair last night, but she didn't dry it. She washed it, but she didn't dry it. And the thought came into my mind, yeah, she's going to wake up one morning with a sore throat. I'm going to have to take off work to take her to the doctor, and I won't get paid as much, and I won't get to drink as much. The, not, the thought never came through my mind that maybe the kid had been crying herself to sleep over me every night. And when I'd been sober... Uh, well, when I was in treatment, she sat across the room from me and she said, Mom, the reason my pillowcases were always wet was because I cried myself to sleep over you every night. And when I picked up my two-year chip in Alcoholics Anonymous, my son came up to me after the meeting and he said, Mom, I want to tell you the reason my bedroom door was always closed and locked was because I cried myself to sleep every night over you and I didn't think little boys were supposed to cry. You tell me this is not a family disease. You can tell me anything in the world, but I live there and I know the damage that my drinking did to my children and my husband. And I don't know when Bo started sleeping in his big recliner chair. But there were a number of nights that I would get up to find my way to the kitchen to find one more drink. And my husband would be sitting in his big recliner chair in the living room crying. And the thought went through my mind that he probably had an employee that was a troublemaker and he was going to have to do something about it. It never dawned on me one time that he had a drunken wife that he couldn't fix. Bo came in from work one day with a motorcycle in the back of that pickup truck and the first thought was, God, now I've got to worry about something else. And I know today that that motorcycle probably saved Mike a lot more than I give it credit. Because, you see, he would come in from school every afternoon and, and I'll say, Mom, I'm going out riding. And his curfew was 10 o'clock. And I, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the little fellow never missed his curfew. But by the time he got home, his mother was already passed out. You know, Bo and Mike and Sissy all played ball. And uh, it got to the point that Mike would say, Mom, please don't come to the game. I am not the best player on the team, and I don't want to be. I just want to be one of the members. I just want to be a team player. And Sissy would say, Mom, please don't come to the ball game this afternoon. You embarrass me every time you show up. And then Bo would say, None of the wives are coming to the game tonight, Shirley. Why don't you just stay at home and do whatever it is you do? 
And then there was that ball game one more time in July of 82. And just a couple of weeks before that, Bo had stayed home with me one Saturday. We, were, we had made it a family day to do the grass and get some things done that had just built up so that we needed to do it all together. And, and I can remember at one point someone knocking on the front door. And I went to the door and it was Bo's coach in full uniform. And I turned and looked at Bo and I said, did you have a ball game today? He said, no, it was, it's the end of the season. They were just giving out awards today. And I said, why didn't you go? You're a pitcher. You, you know, you need to be there. And he said, oh, they can do it without me. And Jimmy had this humongous trophy in his hand, in his arms. And he walked in and he said, Bo, I just wanted to come by here and give you this trophy. You've been voted most valuable player. Now you tell me, how does the man stand out there on a pitching mound and pitch no hitters and voted the most valuable player when he's got a drunken wife at home? You know, there was a time when Mike and Sissy would say, they would tell their friends they didn't have a mother because I never showed up for anything anymore. But they were going to one more ball game in July of 82. And one more time, they didn't want me to go. Mike was 15, about a half of a head taller than me, and absolutely just a good-looking thing. And Sissy was already in the car with her daddy. And as Mike walked past the front door, he looked at me and he said, Mom, when we get home tonight, will you be passed out in the floor or will you be passed out in bed? And with a glass of wine in his hand, I raised my hand and I wanted to slap his teeth out. I wanted to absolutely slap his teeth out for saying something like that to me. How humiliating. You know, you must understand that you're the son and I'm the mother and there needs to be a little bit of respect here. And Mike didn't wait for an answer. Out the door he went. And I turned to close the front door and there was a there was a telephone number on the screen of that TV that was not on. And with the glass of wine in this hand and the telephone in this hand, I picked up this phone and I dialed this number. It was to a treatment center. Now, a treatment center will not get you sober. But I needed a controlled environment. I had drank for so long on a daily basis. I had my days and nights mixed up. I had not eaten in six months. No food only wine. In fact, I had gotten to the point that I didn't wear perfume because the Boone Farm took care of that. I didn't wear makeup because the, a natural glow came through loud and clear. So that saved me an awful lot of money. But uh, I remember dialing this number and it was after hours and it rang in the nurse's station and this lady named Mary and answered and she said, uh, could I help you? And I said, I have a girlfriend with a drinking problem if I had just not run out of avenues. Uh, I talked to her for an hour, and uh, after I'd been on the phone with her, she said, Shirley, why don't you just wait and come up here tomorrow? And what I told her was, my family's gone now, and I'd like to pack a bag, and I'd like to drive up there and park my car at the top of the hill and walk down that little path that has the snakes out at night. That's what they told me. If you leave, the snakes will get you. <laughs> and I wanted to come and stay for 28 days and get fixed. And then I wanted to walk back up that trail, get in my little car and go home and live happily ever after. Man, that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to quit hurting. 
Well, she said, no, Shirley, I just think it would be best if you wait until tomorrow. So I waited up for Bo and Mike and Sissy, and sure enough, they pulled in the driveway, and I was up. And I wasn't passed out. And Mike walked through the door, and he said, Mom, you're up. <laughs> and I said, Mike, I've, I've called a treatment center. I've, I've got to do something about my drinking. And he just looked at me, and he said, yes, ma'am, because you see, he'd heard that before. He had heard that over and over. And then Sissy comes through, and she said, Mom, you're up. And I said, yes, Sissy, I'm up, and I've called a treatment center. And then she, too, said, yes, ma'am, Mom. And she went to her bedroom. And about that time, I heard Mike's door lock and that click, you know, like an ice pick. And I knew he was in for the night. And then old Bo comes through the door. And he says, you're up. <laughs> and, you know, we didn't have any communication. But, I mean, I think that's the first thing that goes in any situation. And it's the hardest to get back. But, you know, we hadn't talked in so long. I think we had forgotten each other's name. And, and he walked in and he said, you're up. And I said, Bo, I've called a treatment center. I've, I've got to have some help with my drinking. And he looked at me and he said, Shirley, this is number 1,382. What is different? And he took a shower and went to bed. And you see what was different was all those other times I put no action to it. It was always, if you'll get me out of this one, Bo, I promise I won't ever do it again. If you'll pick up all these bad checks, Bo, I promise I won't ever do it again. Well, it was just one promise after another. Like my daddy. I was just like my daddy. And you see, the last time my daddy beat me with a belt buckle into the belt, I hollered at him and I said, if God allows me to have children, I promise I will never lay a hand on them. And that night I almost killed Mike. I almost killed my son. Well, I went to this treatment center, and I wish that I could tell you that I stayed 28 days, and I came back, and Bo and Mike and Sissy and I have been living the great American dream ever since. But I went to this treatment center, and I stayed 38 days. And they had something called Hell Week. And I don't remember a lot of it except three things that went on during the, one of the group days. And we were all sitting in this room, and this counselor asked Sissy, said, uh, Sissy, what do you want to do with your mom? And she said, well, I don't know, but I'm tired of being the mother. I'm 13 years old, and I'm tired of tucking my mother in bed at night or covering her up. I'd like for somebody to cover me up and tuck me in bed. And she said, I never load the dishwasher right. I never fold towels right. And in my mom's eyes, I cannot do anything right. And this counselor went to Mike. He's 15. He ought to be in somebody's swimming pool right now or chasing some little girl around the pool. And he's sitting up there in a treatment center because his mom is an active alcoholic. And the counselor said, Mike, what do you want to do with your mom? And he said, I don't know, but I want this same mom. I love her. I just don't want her to drink. And then the counselor went to Bo and said, Bo, what do you want to do with Shirley? And he said, I don't know. I honestly do not know. But we are 18 and a half years, but I'm not going to make it to number 19. And you know, I heard every bit of that. 
I didn't realize what all I had done to my family. And, you know, I feel for these people today that don't get that little bit that I got. And they don't know to keep coming back till it gets better. You know, I feel so very blessed that I was able to go to a treatment center. Of course, I didn't like being there. I didn't like what I had to do. But, you know, I formed relationships with those girls that I'll never forget as long as I live. And I found out things about me, and I worked on me, and learned things that will never be taken away from me. I feel very blessed that I was able to go to treatment. But I stayed the 38 days, and they told me that I was going to get to come home Labor Day weekend. I said, oh, please, not Labor Day weekend. Oh, that's when I would really tie one on because my kids are going back to school. <laughs> I said, please let me stay one more week. And uh, my counselor said, no, it's time for you to leave. And I, I said, what will I do? What will I do? And she said, well, if you're going to stay sober, you're going to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, well, do they have them on these holidays? these meetings on holidays? And she said, yeah, there's going to be one you'll be in on Saturday. And there was a meeting that I was in on Saturday, an anniversary, and, uh, and we did meet the convoy at the Bessemer Group, and we traveled to Tuscaloosa, and I remember walking in, the first thing Mike said was when he saw all these Alateens, are those little drunk? <laughs> Man, they come young around here, don't they? <laughs> And they were running around all over the place having a good time. Nobody was fighting. Mike and Sissy fell in love with those kids. And, and I can remember that so they had a male Al-Anon speaker for Bo. Then they had a barbecue dinner, and then this lady got up, and she said her name. And she said she was an alcoholic. And Mike looked at Sissy, and Sissy looked at Mike and said, there's two of them in this world, her and our mother. <laughs> and it just, uh, it, it just broke the ice. It really did. Because we didn't know what we were getting involved in. We had no idea what was in store for us by going to that anniversary that night. And, and if you're new, if this is your first weekend in anything connected with Al-Anon and Al-Teen and AA, this is right where you need to be. What a fantastic way to jump in at one of the parties. Well, I had been gone 38 days. I had not been home. We did not go by the house. <laughs> I guess they were afraid I wouldn't go. And, uh, so we went straight home after this anniversary, and it was about midnight. And, uh, and Mike and Sissy and Bo and I sat on our den floor with a two-pound bag of chocolate chip cookies and a gallon of milk. And we talked about what we had heard that night and even more what we had seen. And did we want to make a conscious commitment tonight to see if we could find out more about this family recovery. And I'm telling you, what a journey. Absolutely, what a journey. Um, I had lost my job while I was in treatment, and so I was able to stay at home for a year and make some memories. And see, I didn't have any memories. I had a lot of scars, and I had a lot of heartache, but I didn't have any memories with these two children. And I was able to get them up in the morning and send them to school with a good hot breakfast and a, and a goodbye kiss or take them to school myself where in years I had paid somebody to take them to school. And I can remember this first morning that Mike got up, and he had just flunked that whole entire year before I got sober. When he, gra when he got his, his report card in May, 
of this summer that I got sober. He didn't pass anything. And he was going to have to go back to school, junior high, on Tuesday after Labor Day and start all over. And it was because he never could study. Because his mom was always drunk or passed out. And so I get him up for school that Tuesday morning and I couldn't even look Mike in the face. I just, I couldn't let my eyes find his eyes. Because I was afraid, well, for a long, long time I carried around the fact that I'd taken away one year of his life. How could I do that? But that week, the first week he went back to school, he called me every day at lunch. He rode his motorcycle to school, and he called me, and he said, Hey, Mom, what you doing? And I said, Well, I'm cleaning house. Why? Are you okay? And I said, Yeah, I'm okay. I love you. And then he'd hang up. He called me every day from school. And I'd say, aren't you going to get in trouble for being in the halls? And he said, I can handle that. I can handle that. Well, see, Cece was starting to junior high that Tuesday. And she had told all of her girlfriends she wouldn't be there. Bo and I didn't know that. But that little girl was contemplating suicide because she couldn't stand the pain. Because her mother had never said a kind word to her. You know, I'd tell Cece, if you made better grades, I wouldn't drink. And she made the honor roll. See, I did every bit of that to my children. You know, I hear people in the group now, these girls talking about the amends they make. I say, if you want to hear about some amends, let me tell you about some amends. I'm still making amends. But anyway, I was home for, for about a year. And I, I found me, I didn't find a sponsor. This lady came up to me and she said, until the fog clears and you know your name, she said, I'm, I'm going to be your sponsor. And she said, you're to show up every night down here and we're to start working on the amends to your kids. And I said, I thought the amends steps was on down a little further. And she said, not for you, Shirley. The amends steps start right now first because you've injured your children so much that you need to get started on that right now. And I started making amends to my kids. The last time I talked to my mom on the phone, she said that I was the sorriest of her three kids and that she wouldn't count on me if I was the only thing she had to count on and that Mike and Sissy deserved a better mother than what they had. And she hung up. Well, I'd been sober 15 months when my mom called one night and she said, I've got to tell you something, but I don't want you to drink. I said, Mom... I don't think there's anything you can tell me that will make me drink. And she said, well, I have just found out that I have exactly what your grandmother had when she died at the age of 50. And I have to go on the kidney dialysis machine twice a week. And I don't want to. And I got mad at God. How are you, why are you doing this to me? I'm sober today. I'm making these amends to my kids. I'm trying to get back the relationship with my mom, and now she's going to die if she doesn't go on this machine. And I went to a meeting that night, and they had it on me again. I, you know, they have these meetings on me all the time. And they still have these meetings on me. And, and I was sitting there with my sponsor, and she said, well, this is what you've got to do. And I said, okay. Because, see, I trusted her. I knew she was going to tell me the truth. 
And she said, what you got to do is show up every time your mom goes on this kidney dialysis and you tell her that you love her. And I said, but she knows that I love her. She said, that don't make any difference. you got to tell her. And so for the next three and a half years, I spent every Monday and every Friday at the kidney dialysis place in Norwood Clinic where my mom was hooked up for four hours each time. I was the only child that showed up. And if Bo and I were going to a conference on Friday and they called to ask us to come and share, I would say, as long as I'm not the Friday night speaker, because I have to be with my mom. And somewhere along this way, this journey, as I'm sitting there with my mom one night, rubbing her legs, she says, you know you've got a five-year chip coming up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, you know that's right. And she said, well, do you think that they would let me come and give you your chip? I said, why, sure they would. And we were sitting there a little longer talking, and she said, Shirley, of my three kids, you have turned out to be the best. You have been the one that's been with me every Monday and Friday since the first night they hooked me up. And Mike and Susie couldn't have a better mother if they searched the whole world over. And I love you. My mom made an amends to me because of a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. And all I did was start making amends to her. And I told her that I loved her every time I saw her. And I told her because I wanted her to know I loved her because she was my mom and not dying of cancer. One month away from my five years, she died. She didn't get to come to the party. And Cece got up and she said, I'm filling in for my granny tonight. She had a date with God. And says, you know, God just won't wait. I mean, when he says, come, means it. So I'm going to give my mom her five-year chip. And Mike was in the back of the uh, room at the coffee bar. And when I got my five-year chip, I walked back to him and he said, Mom, I'm 20 and you're five. Now, do you want me to slow up just a little bit or are you going to speed up just a little bit? I said, I think I'll speed up just a little bit. Uh, well, uh, Mike went on and he, he went on to school and he was getting ready to graduate and he came home one afternoon and he said, uh, they've given out all the notices on the prom. And he said, you know, I've been thinking. I'd go, but man, it's so expensive. He said, by the time you rent the tux and you buy pictures and you go out to eat and you buy flowers. I said, I'll pay for it. He said, I'll go. <laughs> so we got him already, got him fitted for his tux, and I ordered the flowers and all this stuff going on. And uh, the prom is on Friday night, and on Monday night before the prom, Bo and I are leaving to get ready to go. I mean, we're getting ready to go to a big book study at Bessemer. And uh, one of the things we did in our home was we started eating dinner together. That was a big change for us sitting at the table, no TV, eating and talking. So we had finished dinner and the phone rang. As we were walking out the door and I answered it and it was this friend of mine and Bo's named Jim. And Jim said, Shirley, before you leave for the meeting, i got to talk to Mike. Let, let me talk to Mike. And I said, what do you want to talk to Mike for? He said, it ain't none of your business. And so I handed the phone to Mike and Mike said, yes, sir, I am. No, sir, I'm not. 
and kept on for a few minutes and about that time these big old tears just started coming down Mike's face. And I'm thinking, what in the world could he be saying to my little boy that would cause him to cry? And finally he said, yes sir, I'll be there. So he hung up and I said, now what was that all about? And he said, well, you know, I'm going to the prom Friday night. And I said, yeah. He said, well, that was yours and dad's buddy, Jim, who's got the car dealership. And he said, if I'd come by the car dealership Friday afternoon after school, I could pick out any car I wanted to drive for the prom. And he said, Mom, if you weren't sober, these things wouldn't be happening to me. And I'm so glad you're sober. Well, he went to the prom and he had a ball. He absolutely had a ball. The next couple of weeks was getting ready for graduation and we gave him a graduation party and the house was filled, like Bo said this morning, of AAs and Alanons. Because, see, you're our family now. Everything we do, we include you and you include us. And uh, So he got a little nervous and he said, Mom, I need to see you just a quick minute in my bedroom. And he was going to Florida for a week at, right that night after graduation and I thought, he's going to hit me up for a loan. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> and... Uh, so as we were walking past the front door to go to his bedroom, I looked out on the front porch and there were five cans of beer. I called him over and I said, hey, you tell me, what is this? He said, mom, it's five cans of beer. <laughs> and I said, but who, who does it belong to? And he said, well, there were a number of my buddies that wanted to come to my graduation party. And I told them, we don't allow alcohol in our home anymore. Now you're welcome to come to the party and eat but you got to leave your booze outside. And they'll pick it up when they leave. I said, really? He said, hey, now there's one of them that I said if he didn't behave, you'd take away his car keys. And I said, am I that bad? He said, no, he is. And, uh, <laughs> and so we went into his bedroom, and, and he said, now sit down here on my bed. i got three things to tell you. And I said, oh, boy, this is important. He said, yes, ma'am, it is. It's got to be said tonight. And he closed his door. And he said, number one, he said, I just want to thank you for being sober. And I thought of the promises in the big book, and I thought, they'll never happen to me because, you see, I'm junk. And I've done so much damage in my lifetime. And he said, I hear Sissy tell you all the time, Mom, how proud she is of you. And, and I am too, but I don't say it a lot, but I'm going to say it right now. And he said, number two, there's been a wall up between us for a number of years, a glass wall. He said, you blame yourself for this year that I flunked in school. And he said, Mom, that's not the way the record needs to be written. He said, I flunked myself. Sissy made the honor roll. And he said, in about an hour, I'm going to get my diploma from high school. And he said, when I walk across that platform and I get that diploma and I look at you, it's going to be thumbs up. And he said, then from that day forward, we're not ever to have anything said about this year that I flunked. Is that clear? And I said, but my, he said, I don't want to hear any buts. He said, this glass wall is going down right now. And I started to get up, and he said, wait a minute. I said three things, and I said, well, you're going to have to go a long way to find something that's going to top what I just heard. He said, I got it. It probably should have been number one. But he's the number three, Mom. No matter how many little girls I date, you'll always be my number one girl. Aww. And I thought, 
And all I wanted to do was quit drinking. That's all I wanted to do. Well, I put my arms around Mike, and he put his arms around me, and we cried, and that glass wall went down. And, honey, I'm here to tell you it never went back up. He went on and got his diploma, and I wish I could tell you that the next year, Sissy graduated, and she called me into her bedroom, but she didn't. <laughs> but see, she got involved in Alateen. That's the difference. Now, Mike went to Alateen for four weeks and said, Mom, I'll go with you and Dad when you go to the beach to these conferences. And I'll be at the club every night you get a chip. But he said, I just don't think it's for me. But this is the way I believe. When you live in a home where there's active alcoholism, you are affected. When you live in a home where the program is practiced, you are affected. And my little boy had a program. And there were days he would come in school and he'd say, Sissy, get your books. I've got to talk to you. And one day they'd go in Sissy's room and close the door. And one day they'd go in Mike's. And one afternoon they came back out after an hour and I said, Hey, what was all of that about? Mike said, it was a closed meeting. <laughs> but Sissy didn't call me into her bedroom. And I looked at Bo and I said, something's kind of missing here, you know. But let me tell you what happened with Sissy. I'd been sober seven months. And uh, she came home one day from school and she said, Mother, i got to do something that I don't want to do. And I said, what is that? And she said, my sponsor says, if I'm going to get better, I've got to get all the garbage out. And so I have sat down and I have made a list of all the things that you did to me when you were drinking. And I have a list of all the things that you said to me when you were drinking. And Mom, I've got to tell you about them. And I'm thinking, uh-uh. I, uh-uh, I don't know. And uh, she said, well, I've got to do it and I've got to do it right now. So we went into her bedroom and we locked the door. And we got up in the middle of her big canopy bed, and she had her legal pad. And we sat Indian-legged facing each other, and for two hours she read all these things that I had done to her when I was drinking. And 98.5 of the things I didn't remember. And, you know, she brought up how I would pull out the linens because she couldn't fold them out, and how I would talk to her the way I did when she didn't load the dishwasher right, and things like that and when she got through she folded the legal pad back over and she said that's it and I said Sissy I don't know what to say except I'm sorry and she said that's all you have to say it'll never be brought up again she's 28 years old today and it has never been brought up again you know she came to me when she was a senior came to me and her dad and said I want to go to college and I said Sissy I'm sorry but I drank up college she said, Mom, you don't understand. I have the grades. I have all the book, all the on-the-job training. I got to go to college. And I said, what do you want to do? And she said, I want to work with alcoholics and their families. And so with Mike's help and Bo working three jobs and me working, we packed this little girl up and sent her to college at Montevallo about 40 miles away. And we moved her in on a, on a Sunday afternoon, and I got home from work on Tuesday, and she was in the driveway. And I said, what are you doing here? She said, I don't like it down there without you. <laughs> it's just not the same. And this is the kid that had told me when she was, uh, that, that year I got sober, when she gets out of high school, color her gone, that she wanted nothing else to do with me, period. And she said, Mom, I got down there to school, and it's just quiet. 
and I don't have you waking me up in the morning with a cup of hot chocolate and giving me a good morning kiss. And she said, I just don't like it down there. And I said, look, you go down there. Your daddy's working hard to pay for that tuition and that, that dorm. And you need to go down there and get your education. Well, so what I did that year she was in school is every Wednesday I'd make her a batch of brownies and Mike would say, I'll run them down to her and just kind of give her a little break in the middle of the week. And she'd come home every weekend. And so I'd call Sissy and I'd say, Mike's on his way. He'll be down there in a few minutes. And then she would call me and tell me, Mom, the brownies were still warm. <laughs> and so one night I, I had tried to pay for his gas to go down there, you know, it's 80 miles. And I said, Mike, let me... Let me pay for your gas. And he said, Mom, just a minute. Oh, you know, in that big book of Alcoholics Anonymous of yours, you've got highlighted a sentence that says, Be willing to go to any length to get it. And what I'm doing when I take Sissy those brownies is I'm checking out all the girls on her dorm floor. <laughs> and so I never tried to pay him anymore. I still. Oh, but... Uh, Sissy got, it got time for Sissy to finish her first year, and Mike came to me and his dad again and said, I want to move Sissy home for you. I've got four buddies with pickup trucks, and let us all take Saturday and move her back home, and you and Dad won't have to fool with it. And I said, but Mike, we can rent one U-Haul and get it done in one trip. And he said, but Mom, all you got to do if we move her is give us lunch. That's all we'd want is for you to feed us. And I said, well, I can do that. So Mike and his four buddies, the pickup truck, go down to Montevallo, and they get Sissy all loaded up, and they move her back home. And uh, they put everything in the living room, everything. You know, the little portable refrigerator and the TV and the typewriter. And I said, Mike, don't you think we need to move it sort of to the back of the house? And he said, well, she's moving out in two months. <laughs> Just, just leave it right here. Makes sense to him. So it was right there in the living room. You could, had to make a path to get by. And, uh, and so this was Mother's Day weekend of, of 88. And on a Tuesday night the following week, I went to my meeting at Bessemer, like I always do. And we had made this deal that we'd meet back at the house at 10 o'clock for dinner because we were going in so many different directions now that Sissy was home and... I go to my meeting, I get home, and I'm sitting there watching the news at 10 o'clock waiting on Mike to get home. And I see this god-awful accident that's just happened three miles from our house. And I'm sitting there looking at this TV screen, and I said, My God, that's my son. I just bought him those Reeboks. I saw it on the 10 o'clock news, and I did not know what to do. And I kept thinking, this, this is not happening to me. And Bo came in from work. He worked till 11 on Tuesday nights. And at 12.15, three policemen, two who had been Mike's coaches in Little League, knocked on our front door and they said, Shirley and Bo, Mike's been killed instantly by a drunk. And I'd been in this program almost six years, 11 months before I lost my mom. And the only thing I could think of was, why me, God? Why me? Why not somebody else that doesn't care where their kids are at night? God, what part of this program did I not do right? Which step did I miss? I've tried my best to make these events to these two kids because somebody said I had to. 
I paid back every dollar that I ever stole from Mike. I paid back every quarter that I ever took from Sissy. Why is this happening to me? Not the sunshine of my life. And within 45 minutes, there was AA and Al-Anon in our home, and, and family came. Yeah, everybody came. My aunt and uncle from Silver Spring, Maryland, and my uncle just sat there in that house for four days. And he said, I have never felt so much love as I have felt in this home these four days. And I don't remember what happened for 72 hours. The girls did make a list of three hours each, and they came over and they babysat me. One girl would say, Shirley, you need to go to the little girl's room. Shirley, you need to eat this piece of cheese or drink this little deep sea cup of milk. And if I laid down for a few minutes and opened my eyes, there was a girl right there beside me. And I would say, what are you doing here? And she'd say, I don't know. These are my three hours. I was told not to let you out of my sight. <laughs> and some girls I didn't even know. And uh, Mike had just bought a brand new motorcycle one month prior to this. He was not on his motorcycle, he was in his car. But I'd go out and put his helmet on and sit on his motorcycle in my pajamas. And I'd turn around, I'd realize somebody was behind me, and I'd look and I'd say, Marion, what are you doing here? And she said, I don't know. These are my three hours. <laughs> but I'm here to tell you I wouldn't have made it. I would not have made it if it had not been the girls in the decimal group who babysat me for 72 hours and dressed me. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't. I didn't know where I was. Oh. Um, I couldn't, I didn't know my name. And the Alateens came and literally took care of Sissy. Because I was not capable of taking care of myself, much less Bo and Sissy. And Mike was buried on Friday. And on Saturday morning, uh, we went up to the hospital to see that little girl that was in the car with Mike. But let me tell you this, that after the funeral was over with and people started kind of clearing out, I looked at Bo and I said, now what do we do for the rest of our lives? And he looked at me and he said, well, I don't know anything to do except go to a meeting. And I said, I don't know if I can sit there. He said, that's okay. I can't sit there either, but we'll go to a meeting. So we got up and we changed clothes and we went to a meeting. We went to Hueytown, because at that time there was not a meeting at Bessemer on Friday nights. And we walked in, and we let the people in the Bessemer group take care of us that night. Where else have I got to go? What else have I got to do? Who's going to understand me any more than an AA or an Al-Anon? The next day we did go to the hospital to see these little girls, and, and, uh, and she was so sweet. And she, when we started to leave, she said... Uh, I just wanted to tell you that I'll always love Mike. I think about that a lot. I will always love Mike. Well, it's been nine years now. You know, people ask us, how are you handling it? Well, we're handling it one day at a time. And I honestly believe that I miss him more today than I ever have. And I think that's the way it's supposed to go on. Um, 
not too long ago someone called and uh, asked me if I'd come and share at a meeting 60 miles away. It was a Sunday afternoon and you know I had all these irons in the fire and my first response was I'd be glad to. And I hung up and looked at Bo and I said, why did I do that? He said, well, you don't know anything to say except yes. And, uh, <laughs> and I hung up and I thought, well, dinner's in the oven. I got a washer full of clothes and the dryer needs to be emptied. And uh, Bo said, well, we need to turn everything off and we need to go. So we did. And we got in the van and just as we headed down the street, it started raining. And I thought, uh-uh. Not rain for 60 miles. And I griped, and I complained, and I was not a happy camper at all. And two times down the road, though, I almost pulled off by the road. I know he did, because he told me, if you say one more thing, I'm turning around. But he didn't. And we get up to the Coleman group, and it's an old group, and it's, uh, you go up this big flight of stairs that's above a pool hall, and they have the naked light bulbs hanging from the ceiling, and down the aisles of the walls, they have couches with springs that are coming up and that's where the newcomers sit and uh, it's a real old group and I love the Coleman group and I got there just in time to just get me a cup of coffee and go up and sit down on the front row and this guy introduced me and I got up and I started sharing and I got to the part about Mike and this little boy on the front row absolutely put his head down in his lap and cried and I looked at Bo and I thought what do I do? And he smiled, which meant I needed to go on. If he'd said this, I'd have cut it off. But uh, I went on. And as soon as the Lord's Prayer was over with, this little boy came up and absolutely squeezed me so hard I thought the breath was going to stop in me. He said, Miss Templin, I am so glad to see you. And I said, do I know you? He said, yes, ma'am, you know me. I'm Jane. And I'm thinking, who is Jane? And he said, uh, you don't remember me? And I said, son, I'm sorry, but I, I just can't place you. He said, I graduated from high school with Mike. I said, from Hueytown? He said, yeah. I said, what are you doing up here in Coleman? He said, I'm in a halfway house. I said, no. He said, yeah. My family kicked me out. He said, I've been up here for about five months, and uh, I'm in a halfway house. And I said, well, James, to tell you the truth, son, I'm sorry, I just can't play. She said, wait a minute, I think you'll know me. Wait a minute. You remember the night of Mike's graduation party? I said, yeah. He said, you remember those five cans of beer that were sitting by the seat? I said, I got you. I know you. <laughs> he said, no, uh-uh. I'm the one that Mike said if, you, uh, he didn't, if I didn't behave, you would do something about it. I'm that one. I said, you're the one with the car keys? I said, yeah. He said, I know you now. And I said, bless your heart, how are you doing? He said, I, ain't, I don't know. He said, I've had my butt on my shoulder for a while. He said, I didn't get company today. And he said, I want to apologize for my appearance. He said, I haven't shaved, I haven't showered, I haven't cleaned clothes on. I have laid around in my room feeling sorry for myself all day. He said, there's a rule that the van will not leave for the... AA meeting until all the seats are full. And he said, I was laying there on my bed with my butt shirt unbuttoned, and I said, I ain't going to the meeting. And the horn tooted the second time, and he said, I ain't going to that meeting. And he said, before the horn tooted the third time, I was down the stairs, had my shoes in my hand, and got in the van. And he said, I walked up the steps just as you were getting your coffee. 
and sat down and I thought it must be meant for me to be here. Well, I want to tell you something. He looked at me and he said, um, I said, did you know Mike had died? He said, oh yeah, but I was too drunk to come to the funeral. He said, Mike called me two weeks after graduation. He said, James, here's my mother's name and telephone number. And if you ever decide that you want to get some help, you call my mom and she'll take you to a meeting. And I said, you never have called, have you? He said, no, ma'am, I haven't. I said, well, let me make a deal with you. If you ever get back to Hueytown, you call me and I'll take you to a meeting. He said, you got it. Well, we got back in the van and we went home. And I want to tell you that I made amends all the way home the way I had acted all the way there. You see, I'm normal. I'm, I'm human. And I don't do everything right today. I know that I've been sober since July the 29th, 1982, but there are a lot of days when I don't do the things that I need to do. There are times in my sobriety where I've chopped people's heads off. I've hung up on them. And I go to a meeting and I sit there like a knot on a log because something's not right with me. Something's not going on right with me. But you know, I don't stay that way very long because I've got enough sense in me to know that i got to get with somebody and i got to get it talked about and I've got to get it out. So I'm not, I'm not Miss AA all the time. I want y'all to know that. <laughs> but, uh, but today is a lot better. I have a lot more better days today than, than I used to have. I want to tell you a little bit about Sissy. She had this blind date one night with this fella, and Cece was the kind of kid, after she went back, finished college, and moved back home, when, she'd ha when she would have a date, she would uh, come in and slide right up between me and her dad and say, Mom, I want to talk to you about my date. And I'd think, oh, Cece, I don't want to know everything. <laughs> and uh, so she came in from this date, and uh, she said, Mom, I need to ask you a question. I said, what? She said, is it possible to fall in love at first sight? I said, yeah, I believe we better get up and make a pot of coffee and we need to talk. And <laughs> so I would get up and we talk and she said, Mom, I really believe I fell in love with Bob tonight. And I said, well, I understand. I really do. So Bob and Sissy started dating and Bob had been married before and he has the two children and they bring them over to the house and we get to meet them. And I look at Bo and he looks at me and I said, it's your grandchildren. And... Uh, they set the date to get married, and uh, we sit down and start planning this thing. And Sissy said, I want to get married in the church where you and Daddy married. If it worked for you, it'll work for me. So we, that was going to not be a problem. And so she said, now I want you to light a candle in memory of mine. I said, I don't know. She said, uh-uh, this is my wedding. You will light a candle for my brother at my wedding. I have the pictures if you want to see them. <laughs> and then we started signing you talking about preachers. And Cece said, well, let me tell you the one I want to marry us. And I said, who? And she said, the counselor that you had in treatment just so happened to be an ordained minister, didn't he? I said, yes. I want Howard to marry us. So we had little conferences with Howard, and Howard was going to come and do a Methodist service in a Baptist church <laughs> in a Catholic robe. 
I believe it's got a good chance, don't you? <laughs> then we opened the wedding with a serenity prayer. We closed it with everybody standing and saying the Lord's Prayer. And at the wedding reception, Bob's mom came up to me. She's a real sweet lady. And she said, Shirley, I need to ask you just one little question. I said, anything. She said, are you going to take my two grandchildren and spoil them rotten? And I looked at her and I said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to love them to death. And she said, well, if they turn out half as well as Cece, you will never hear any complaint from me. I think Bob and Cece have a pretty good chance. So we sat down one night with them and we said we'd like to sell the home because it's so big and no one's ever there anymore. And it's gotten to be a big upkeep with a pool and two decks and all the stuff that goes along with it. And we said, Cece, would it be okay if we downsize a little bit? And she said, Mom, if you and Dad lived in a tent, it would be a home. And see, this is the little girl that said, when I get out of high school, color me gone, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. And then she said, wherever you and my dad live, just make a place for me and Bob. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to call, their last name is Country, and we're going to put a fence all the way around the property and put this big sign, this big archway that says Templin Country. Now isn't that neat? <laughs> Templin Country. You know, not too long ago I got to keep the two grandchildren. I don't know how it happened. Bo was out of town, Bob was out of town, Cece was out of town, and I got to keep the two little ones, and it's uh, been a long time since I'd had little ones. <laughs> and uh, I left all the lights in the house on that, that Saturday night because I knew they wouldn't be familiar with the house, and uh, got up the next morning for breakfast. I said, all right, now you're going to have to help me a little bit. It's been a long time since I've had youngsters. Will said, I am not a youngster. I'm a young man. I said, it's been a long time since I've had young men in my home. <laughs> And I said, you're going to have to help me with breakfast. And I said, how about a Pop-Tart? Will said, is that all you got? <laughs> and I said, well, how about bacon and eggs? That usually goes over well. Carol said, we were kind of hoping for something special. And I said, well, let me think a little bit more. And Carol uh, said, I love pancakes or, you know, waffles and stuff like that. I said, wait a minute, I got it. For Christmas last year, Sissy gave me a Mickey Mouse waffle iron. Why don't we take out the Mickey Mouse waffle iron and we'll make waffles? Will said, that's fine with me, but you'll have to cut my ears off. I don't do ears. <laughs> so we did the Mickey Mouse waffles and took it out of the waffle iron and I cut his ears off. And, and I said, Kale, do you want your ears on or not? She said, I'll take my ears on. And, and every time I see Will, he said, you still got that Mickey Mouse waffle iron? I said, yeah. He said, don't ever get rid of it. Don't ever get rid of it. And it's been neat. It's, it's truly been a joy. I got another chance at two little kids' lives. And I won't, don't want to mess up. I don't want to mess up. And you see, they're not stepchildren. They're not step-grandchildren. When my little girl walked down that aisle and married Bob, they're mine. No step involved. They just went right into being in my heart, and I love them. God's put four hunks in my life. He put my best friend, my husband, my driver. <laughs> uh, 
the one that I that I want to share the rest of my life with. Then the second hunk is that little angel that lives up in heaven named Mike, and he would have been just as fine a daddy and just as fine a, hun- a husband as his own daddy because, you see, he was a chip off the old block. The third one is that young man who came to me and Bo and said, I love Cece with all my heart and soul. Can I have your permission to marry her? I promise I'll take care of her forever. I got a little bit of excess baggage, like two children, but I promise you I'll take care of her. The fourth one is the young man who recorded a song that I'd like to close with one verse of. His name is Ronnie Millsap. And if you listen to the whole song, it will sum up Shirley Templin in this one verse that I'd like to share with you. What a difference you made in my life. What a difference you made in my life. You're my sunshine day and night. Oh, what a difference you made in my life. And that's my AA. Thank you, and I love you.